0: Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that. Now, back at the uh, beginning of September, we, we kicked off our new uh, series for this ministry where we are looking at the Word, the Bible, because the Bible is more than just a book of history, an account of what's happened in the past. It's also a book that has a lot of songs included, poems, laments, prophecies, letters, and throughout all of these different types of writings, we have this book that God is speaking to us through, and that he's trying to communicate it to us who he is and how we can know him. But more than that, what's, what's incredible about the Bible is not, it's not just a book, it's living and active. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 puts it like this, that God's word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it cuts down to our very souls and the depths of who we are and our lives and our minds. The Bible is more than just a collection of what what has happened. It is God speaking directly to us today, here and now. These are God's words to us. It is alive, and it is the power of God to speak to us, which is incredible. Now, we started this series by looking at the story of Abraham, and Pastor Dustin introduced us to the life of Abraham and how he had lived in obedience to God and showed us through his story, through the sacrifice of Isaac that was stopped, um, that, that God is different, that he's not like all the rest of the gods around. In fact, he's real and he's good and he cares for his people. And from there, we looked last week at how God worked with Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, this nation that God had led uh, to and is going to lead to the promised land. But before that, they are enslaved in Egypt for nearly 400 years. And so as this people group is now living in slavery to a powerful nation, God speaks to a man named Moses and raises his, uh, him up to lead the nation out of their enslavement. As God works miracles and wonders and the plagues that we talked about last week, how through them God showed that he is more powerful, not only more powerful, but the only true God over everything that the Egyptian gods that they worshipped weren't as real or true as the one true God. And after this time, God showed that he was in control of everything. He led the nation of Israel out of their enslavement in Egypt through the Red Sea. If you've seen The Prince of Egypt, amazing movie, I recommend it. Talks about that story there. I'm not going to walk through that whole story. There's a lot there that we could look through. Uh, but after this time, they walk through the Red Sea and they wander in the desert for 40 years. Now, it's not like they like, lost their GPS, it's recalculating. They didn't lose their way, but in a different sense they did. They didn't lose a sense of direction, they lost sight of who their God was. And so they wandered in the desert, they turned their backs on God constantly, they grumbled against him, and they would just choose not to follow him and live in obedience, Now, so after that period of time, after these 40 years, they're wandering in the desert, following God in the pillar of fire by night, uh, the pillar of smoke by day. After that time, then we start to see some good news. We're in the book of Joshua now. Uh, Joshua is taken over from Moses, and he he is put in charge to lead this nation into the promised land, this land that God said he prepared for them, that they would dwell in. And it's great, and we see victory after victory as God fights the battles of these people right all they have to do is march around these walls and they fall before them as in the story of jericho it's a good time in history but as you can expect it doesn't last very long right soon enough the israelites are back to their old patterns they start wandering away from god they choose to live their own obedience or in obedience to their own desires instead of obedience to god And so God tries to turn this people back to himself to help them see that he is the only true and real God. And so he allows them in their wanderings to be ruled over by their enemies, to be put under their weight and yoke of slavery and attacks so that they might reach out and ask God for help, that they might return to him. And sadly, this would just be a template of the nation of Israel for the next hundred years, few hundred years, rather. Right, this this rhythm that Israel would return to their God, that they would live in a season of peace for a while, and then they would fall away. And then God would raise up a leader who would bring them back to turning their hearts to God. He would lead them in peace for a time until he died, and they'd fall back into their old sins. And time after time, if you read through the story in one go in the book of Judges in King Samuel Chronicles, you get this idea that They continually turn their backs, but God continually steps into their mess to save them. Until eventually they again wander away. God raises up a leader to help them to see and lead them back to God. And finally, they live in a time of peace. Now, this is the period of history that we're going to be looking at today. The time when Israel was ruled by their leaders, by their judges, and their kings. And like I said, this was a terrible time in Israel's history. They were constantly disobeying God, and they were choosing to interact with the nations around them in ways that they shouldn't have, but we'll get to that more. But as we as we look today at how God interacts with us, interacts with his broken people in the past, we can learn how he interacts with us, and there's three main points that I want us to see through this. That we've all sinned, it's not really much news to us new, but... We have all sinned that when we repent, God is merciful, and that when we repent, he redeems our mistakes. He redeems them. He doesn't just forget about them or wipe them away. He redeems them and works them into the story of his grace and love. Now, again, this is a terrible time in Israel's history. They're not doing so great. And some of the most gruesome and brutal stories that we read in God's word are in the book of Judges. It is a terrible time in in Israel's history until the point where they almost wipe out one of their own tribes, the tribe of Benjamin, because of how corrupt they'd become. And this is one of the books that gives us the clearest picture of what sin looks like in our lives, how sin wrecks our own lives and hurts the world around us. Now just read through the book, and again, you see this brokenness on top of brokenness, failure after failure Israel had entered into the promised land at this time, but after they had taken over the land, they still had some nations that were dwelling in the land that were still waging war against them. They hadn't really completely wiped out all of the people groups there. And so they continue to wage war against God's people, and God's people fall under the weight of turning their backs on God. And here's where we see this pattern happen, this template that's going to continue on again. Israel turns their back on God, God raises up a leader, turns the nation back to himself until the leader dies, then they fall away again, and then it starts over and over and over. Israel turns away from God, overcome by their enemies, God raises up a leader, they enjoy peace until the leader dies. And with each new leader, you can see in in the language in the book of Judges that Israel is wandering further and further away from God each time they turn their backs on him, right? When you, when you read through the language at the beginning, it says that this leader ruled and Israel experienced peace for 40 years, for this number of years. And then after a few leaders, the language changes. And it just says that this person ruled for so many years, not that they experienced peace. And if you keep reading... Actually, the book of Judges, again, very discouraging book. The very last words in the book of Judges, it ends like this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Right? God's people are in ruins. They're in shambles at this point. Like I said, they even just tried to annihilate one of their own tribes because of how much evil there was and corruption in the people. That's not the way life was supposed to be. They were supposed to see the miracles and wonders and plagues that God brought upon Egypt, and they were supposed to remember these things and to know that God is in control, that he's powerful and good, but they forget, and story after story just tells of how they fail to continue to pursue God. And if you keep reading, like I said, through Judges, Samuel, Chronicles, Kings, there's Failure after failure, brokenness after brokenness. And even when we see these small glimpses of hope, when we see a righteous character rise up, it's amazing, and there is a small story of success, but it's always, always tainted by the brokenness of humanity. And the story gets pretty bleak, right? Leader after leader, king after king constantly turns their backs on God. And if you keep reading... It's hard to not stop and ask yourself the question, when you see the overall story of what God's doing and humanity's consistently turning their backs on him, it's hard to not ask the question, why do we keep making these same mistakes over and over again? Why do we keep doing these same things if it's only hurting us more and more? Why do we allow these cycles of brokenness to just repeat in our lives? Right? Because if you look at it as a whole, it's just a constant cycle of brokenness. And if we were to reason the way the world does, if we were to look at this the way the world does, it doesn't really make sense, right? When we live in disobedience to God, we shouldn't experience the punishment of our sins. We shouldn't experience the consequences because I know myself best. I know what's best for me, and I should be able to choose that. But the truth of the word tells us that God knows us better than anything and that all of us have chosen sin over him at points in our lives. Right? We all have flesh. We all continue to do the very things that we know only hurt us and make the world worse off around us. We continue to do these things. And until we see, or rather acknowledge, that we have this propensity within each one of us, we're not going to see our need for the Savior. We're not going to understand the gospel until we recognize that we are broken and needy people. And that's why we see this story repeat over and over again. Right, God's people constantly dealing with their brokenness of their turning their backs on God and to realize that we're no different. It's easy as we're reading the story of the Israelites to laugh at them and to think, man, these guys are idiots, they should have known better. And in the same way, we make the same mistakes. Now, remember what I said at the end of the book of Judges, what, it, what it, the book ends with, that each person lived in their own way, each doing as he saw fit. Now, I think that describes our culture pretty well. Right? living in today's world, and when we do live in this way, when we live in obedience to our own desires in life, I don't know if you've recognized this yet, but we hurt ourselves. We hurt others around us too. Right? There are natural consequences to disobeying the laws the way God has created this world. He's created this world with gravity. If you disobey the law of gravity, you jump off a cliff, you hurt yourself if you disobey the ways God has created this world morally for us to live well within, we hurt ourselves. And sin makes our lives often worse around us. And God has been trying to help us see for thousands of years that if we only trust him, if we're only willing to live our lives for him, then we can experience true joy and peace and life. Which leads us to the story that we're going to be looking at today, the story of a man named David. Now, Coming back to the timeline, after Israel entered into the promised land, they had, uh, the book of Judges happens. Uh, these judges are raised up to lead the nation of Israel, in this time of peace they fall, and they continue on in this spiraling circle downwards until we reach the book of Samuel, where this, this prophet is raised up, and God's people, again, are continually turning their backs on him, but there comes a point where Israel is so bothered by the fact that God is leading them they don't want him as their ruler anymore. They want a human king. And so they ask God, they say, we don't want you to lead us anymore, we want a human king. And so God says, okay. And even though they were warned that having a king would only bring them more suffering, that the king would enslave them, that he would take their resources, that he would rule over them, they still said yes. They still chose the very thing that would still hurt them. Now, the very first king that we read about in the bible that ruled the nation of israel was a king named saul and again when you start reading the story of saul it's a pretty promising story god raises up this man who seems like a righteous leader and for a season of time he did lead the nation of israel well and you can expect again that it's going to fall into a place of brokenness with his story Right? They have a righteous re- uh, ruler who would lead them in a time of peace, but it wasn't even for very long. Only a few chapters in the story we reread of King Saul choosing to obey his own desires over obedience to Jesus. And out of that, he not only loses a lot of his relationship with God, but he loses the kingdom that God had given to him. And he chooses to follow his own desires over relationship with God. And even when he's confronted with his sin, he still holds on to his own desires. He still chooses to go his own way instead of what God is calling him to. And so once again, we see this familiar cycle. God raises up a leader, they fail, they fall, and they start back at square one. But then something promising happens. If you keep reading, after King Saul, there comes this character that actually is different. We see that Saul was righteous, but then there's someone who's completely different. He's this young boy who steps onto the scene and he defeats Goliath using a sling, not a sword he's not trained for battle we see this this boy choose to live in obedience to god to betray his own desires and to do what's right even when it costs him and there's tons of references in the bible to this man named david and the history of his kingship but you know there's only one person in the whole bible named david all of the stories we read about are just this one single man He's the same David who wrote so many of the Psalms, who God made a covenant with, a promise that David would always have a king in his ancestors, in his line and lineage. And at this point, you kind of get excited. You kind of start thinking, maybe there is hope for God's people again. Maybe they will finally, with this righteous person, follow him and be turned back to him until, of course, we read about David's failure. One day, David is staying back in his castle as his army is out fighting, and already we get the idea that he's not making some wise choices. And he sees this beautiful woman bathing, and so he sends out his messenger to go get her, he brings her back to him, and he sleeps with her. Now, this woman was named Bathsheba, and she was the wives of one of David's mightiest men, named Uriah. So she was a married woman, not only that, but one of David's closer friends, one of his mightiest and strongest warriors. And because Uriah is off at war, David starts to put this plan together to take him out. Bathsheba sends word to David that she's pregnant, and as David finds out, he begins to worry, and so he starts figuring out how can he make this problem go away. And so what he does is he sends word to the commander of his armies to send Uriah back from the battle to come hang out with David, and David sets up this fancy potluck, Uh, where he gets Uriah so drunk in hopes that he can send him back to his house and he'll sleep with his wife, and then because she's pregnant, they'll just think, okay, that's Uriah's kid, I'm solved, the problem is gone. But Uriah is a faithful man, and he recognizes that the rest of the soldiers are still off at war, they're not enjoying the comforts of their own home. And so in solidarity, he decides not to go into his home. So David's plan fails, and it fails multiple times until David decides to come up with a better plan. And so he says, you know what, Uriah, go back to to the battle, and here's a letter I want you to take with you. And the letter said, I want you to put Uriah, he's telling this to the commander of the army, he's like, I want you to put Uriah at the front of the battle where he surely will die. Pull back from him until he is dead. Now again, that's what's happening currently but let me just remind you what's happened up until this point david has been an incredibly righteous man david has been someone who is far above all the other leaders that we see in the rest of the bible apart from moses right he is this incredibly righteous man someone who's willing to follow god to give up his own desires to seek god more but we see this man sink into the depravity of sin just like the rest of us and in a in a in a really morose and ironic kind of way, David is just like the rest of us. A person whose story is just about failing to obey God and then facing the consequences of their own actions. And David does all this after he commits this atrocity with Bathsheba, after he murders her husband. Um, It says that after a while, the prophet Nathan came and spoke with David. And he confronted David with his sin. And so as he confronts David with his sin, he he lists the four consequences that would naturally arise out of the mistakes that he had made. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, here are the four consequences that we read, that the sword would never depart from David's house, that out of his own house calamity would come upon him, that his wives would be given to someone else who who was close to him, and the son born to him would die. Those are pretty brutal consequences, and some of them aren't even fair. How does this child have to pay for the mistakes of David? These are the consequences to our sin. Now, it's ironic as well that even though that seems like a pretty harsh consequence, even though these four brutal uh, reprimands to his actions have to happen, it's actually not what the law stated. Do you know what the law said? Leviticus chapter 20, anyone who commits adultery is to be put to death. Right? Leviticus chapter 24, anyone who takes the life of a human being must be put to death. David wasn't above the law. Even though he was the king, he was in charge of making sure the law was followed, he himself didn't do it. And did you know, David would have known the laws. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18, it tells us that one of the first duties of the king is to write down the whole law. One of the first things the king is supposed to do when he becomes king is to record the entire law himself, to write it down. David would have known. He literally wrote those commands down himself, the punishments he would have known. And yet he still committed adultery he's still murdered he still went about hiding his sin after all of that and i'm sure that at some point you too have have witnessed that in life the failing of someone that you thought was righteous or someone that you thought was above failure right whether it's whether it's great leaders like bill hybels ravi zacharias or whether it's just people in our own lives who we thought were better than the sins that they commit and when this happens, it's hard not to ask the question, how could someone so righteous do something so evil? Doesn't get at the right heart though. The word responds with truth and says, there is no one righteous, not one. As amazing as David's feats are, as amazing as the stories we read about his amazing righteousness and, and faithfulness, he still gets it wrong. He still royally messes up and does something deserving of death. And I hope that you're starting to see yourself in that story. Not, not the part where you're a leader and can do whatever you want, but when we read of the lives of broken people to realize that we are the same, that we make the same mistakes, we're not above these things. Now, coming back to David's consequences, the the reprimands that were going to happen for this man, why did they change? Why didn't God actually follow through with the law and actually put David to death? Because of what he had done was deserving of death. And I think it has something to do with the way that David responds to his confrontation. When the the prophet Nathan comes and tells David about his sin, he doesn't try to justify it or explain why he did it or talk about why it's not that bad. He admits his sin. He just says, I have sinned. He repents and continues to follow God. And I think that that does tell us a lot about David's character, but what does that tell us about who God is? I think we read of this truth in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. God is holy he is perfect. He is above us in ways that we cannot even begin to comprehend who he is at times. And yet he is merciful and loving and he steps into the brokenness of our mess and he allows us to know who he is. Not wanting any of us to repent, but all of us to be brought to repentance. Right? He's, not, he's not just always angry waiting for us to make a mistake so that he can just release his wrath upon us. Sometimes how we can view this God, right? First John tells us that that God isn't just loving, that he is the very definition of love itself. We are all broken people, and we are all in need of a savior. And the good news is that when we repent, and all repent means to do is change your direction, to go from one way to the other, to recognize and acknowledge that you've been going the wrong direction, and to turn your face towards Jesus. And as we do that, He is merciful, he helps us, he forgives us, he cleans us up. That's amazing. And he doesn't throw our brokenness back on us expecting us to clean ourselves up, but he invites us to follow him. Yes, at times we will still have to face the natural consequences of our sin and the consequences of what our sin has ruined in the world around us as well. And when we do make bad choices, what does God expect of us? clean ourselves up, to whip ourselves into feeling enough guilt that we finally return to him. All he says is that we acknowledge our mistakes and that we turn to him. And when we do, God says at last, now come and follow me. Do you see how amazing that love for us is? Right? That when you and I wander away from him, that when we make mistakes so bad that people even want to avoid us, that God cares and loves for us so deeply, that he wants us to have life in him. I will clean you up. I will make you whole. All you have to do is follow me. And friends, as amazing as that truth is, that's not even the best part. This is a little bit weird, but turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to read a little bit of an odd section of the Bible, but a beautiful section as well. Matthew chapter 1. If you're you're familiar with this, I'm sure some of you have read it through before, but this is the genealogy of Jesus, and this is the the people in his lineage who he came from. So let me just read a few names here. We'll read from verses 2 to verse 6 there. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And as we're reading some of these stories, you won't need to know all of the names, but let them bring up ideas and pictures of who these people are and what they had done. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Interesting that there's a woman noted in the genealogy. Typically, genealogies would only include the the history of men's lineage. But as we go on, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, a prostitute. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David, who was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It doesn't even list her name. It lists the mistake that David made more than who his lineage actually came through. Now, like I said, you don't need to know all the names of the people listed there to understand what I'm trying to get at. But do you see... What kind of lineage is in the history of the savior of the world? Broken, messed up people like you and me. People who murdered, people who cheated, who lied and deceived others. People who sold their own family into slavery. That is good news for you and me. Just look at the life of that one man named David, right? Out of the worst places of his sin, out of the most broken parts of David's life comes the savior of the world. I wonder what God can do through our brokenness in this world if only we're willing to trust him with it. Yes, when we repent, our sins are separated from us as far as the east is from the west, but he doesn't just forget the things that we've done. Do you see that? he weaves the story of our sin and brokenness into the greater story of his redemption and love. Not, not forgetting and wiping out the things that we've done, but remembering and weaving them into who he is and the life that he has for us. Now, the beautiful part, there's not a single one of us here who hasn't made mistakes. That's good news that our God cares for us, not when we were doing the best things in life, not when we're making our good choices, but in the most depraved parts of our life, that is when Jesus came to save us. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't when we were doing good in life and making sure that all mistakes in our life were out of the way. He loves us in the very worst places of our mess-ups. Our brokenness isn't redeemed by our own strength, by us doing enough to make sure that he loves us, he's already made all that way for us. All we have to do is look to him, turn to him and follow him, to trust him, to keep our eyes set upon him every day. And it is hard. It does mean crucifying ourselves daily, picking up our cross and following Jesus, but I I guarantee you it will be worth it. There's a God who cares deeply for us, that he won't leave us in the mess of our brokenness. He offers us choice to come to him and to be saved and find life and to be welcomed as dearly loved children. That's an incredible promise. So wherever you are in your relationship with God, he cares for you, he loves you, and he wants you to know and to trust your brokenness with him, even the parts of your brokenness that you don't tell to anyone else. He wants you to reveal that to him. So let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that in every season you have cared for us well, that you have remained faithful to us. Father, as we experience, even as we looked at the, the cycles of pursuing you and turning our backs and that, that depressing, despondent cycle, Father, we thank you that in the midst of that, you stepped in to reverse that, that we might know who you are in truth Father, we don't have to wander away, but that we can abide in you. And Father, I ask that you would help us to. It is so easy to wander. There are so many distractions. There are so many things pulling our attention from you, Jesus. But we thank you that you have made a way so that those things don't have to pull us from you. Father, we thank you for the great redemption and love that you poured out for us. We ask that you would help us to understand it a little more.